people. Thank you all so much. Well, just before we get into our sermon time this morning, I just didn't want to load too much on the front end, but uh, I don't know if you see those birthday slides roll, but it is Pastor D's birthday today. It, it very much is. At least that's what the records show. Pastor Darren, on behalf of a grateful congregation, we love you very much, and happy, happy birthday. Uh, Carly and I are birthday twins uh, later on this week, but uh, today's your day, brother. So, good to see you. So, so grateful that uh, you are still so active in ministry and blessing so many, not just at Grace Covenant, but, but beyond. We've talked about that before. We pray the Lord continues to bless you in all your endeavors. God's been good to us to, to let us be blessed by the ministry of Darren McGrew. Amen? Take your Bibles and t- don't clap again. That's enough. Yeah. <laughs> Take your Bibles and, uh, and turn to uh, Psalm 16, and uh, it'll be a wonderful time to spend in God's Word this morning. We're talking about Advent. We're talking about um, the, the peace that comes in the waiting. And so we see the word peace on the screen, and we realize how elusive peace can be in this day and age. In fact, if we're honest, uh, there's conflict everywhere. And, and when I think some of the folks uh, that have seen so many wars in our own congregation think about the word peace at a global level, you probably, the word right behind it is compromise. Because peace uh, often follows on the hills of a, uh, of a negotiated treaty or arrangement that has followed a conflict. So compromise and conflict tend to be word association words that come right up with peace. That, that's not really the peace that we're talking about this morning. We're certainly not talking about just throwing somebody the peace sign and saying, peace out, bro. That's not where we're going this morning. But what about this inner conflict that man seems to be plagued with? There are people who live in a constant state of conflict. Have you met these folks? Like they are looking for a fight if they're not in one. They're so pleasant to be around. Yes? They're constantly agitating and aggravating and stirring something up if they sense there's a lull and there's too much peace. In one of the uh, favorite Christmas movies, probably of many of us in the room, the Charlie Brown Christmas special, Charlie is struggling to get into the Christmas spirit. He struggles a lot, right? But... um, He's struggling to get in the Christmas spirit, and Linus confronts him, as a good brother should, and says, Charlie Brown, you're the only person I know who can turn a wonderful season like Christmas into a problem. All of us probably know somebody like that, and as the one preacher would say, if you don't know anybody like that, you might be that somebody. (laughs) So be careful. But so many of us have had promises made of inner peace if we did this product or followed this plan or did this thing and those checks bounced. Still there are broken promises in relationships that have shattered any hope of peace and reconciliation. But Advent points us to the not so secret ingredient for peace that passes understanding. 
It's a living relationship with the living God of this Bible. The Lord Jesus Christ gives us the peace that we long for. Advent is a season of waiting and we're strengthened in the waiting. There's peace in our waiting, not because we are faithful and good at waiting, I said this earlier, but because Christ is faithful in His coming. Take your Bibles, please, and turn them to Psalm 16 as we continue these Psalms of Advent this year. Psalm 16, and I want us to look at the first couple of verses together. If you're taking notes this morning, by the way, that's a hint, you should take notes this morning. Um, and if you want to follow along electronically, that's okay. You can pull up the church app. Uh, you can go to the Bible app and get a link to it. But pull up the church app and you'll see the today's notes right there. But Psalm 16, the first header I want you to write down is the path of peace. Verses 1 through 4, I think, show us the path of peace. Let's look at it together. Verses 1 through 3 we'll look at first and then we'll take a moment and then look at verse 4. Preserve me, O God. For in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Wow. Look just carefully at the verses. Look in your Bibles if you've got them with you or, or just follow along there. Preserve me, O God. When, when David is praising the Lord and writing this song that Israel will sing, the Hebrews in the Old Testament will sing. I'm going to say this multiple times. Hang with me. The Hebrews in the Old Testament before the incarnation, there's no baby in a manger yet. There's no cross yet. There's no resurrection yet. There's not even the theology of resurrection at this point in the Old Testament. But the Hebrews have a song and they're singing it. And David penning this is saying, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Well, you don't need refuge if there's no conflict. David, even though this could have been written on the heels of a successful battle, still knew that the safest place in the world is not holed up in a fortress somewhere of man's building. No, the safest place in all the world is in the arms of our God and King. God wraps his arms around his children in a way in the Old Testament and the New Testament that covers them and protects them. David would later write, I, I can walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil. Why? Because I'm with him and he's with me. God is our refuge. Your mountain retreat, the, the ball game, whatever your go-to is for your comfort in the moment, and it's okay to have some of those. I'm not saying that there's anything inherently wrong with all of that. What I am saying is this. If that's your only go-to, you're going to be disappointed. David knew that his safest place to be preserved and kept by this God who not only delivers but keeps the refuge was in God. He's a strong and mighty tower a rock that we can run into. Wow, what a God. He goes on to say in verse 2, I, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Surrendering to God results in the highest good. David is not saying his family is no good. I mean, that would be nice, wouldn't it? That's a pretty cool Christmas card. Merry Christmas. My family's no good. My church is no good. My job is no good. My life is no good. Praise the Lord. Yeah. That's not a Christmas card 
different holiday, I think. So, so David is not saying that there's no good around him. This is the same David that writes about creation proclaiming the goodness of God. No, what David is saying is, when I take the best good that I experience in this life, it does not compare to the good that I have in your presence. Man, does this describe your relationship with God? Is he the God that satisfies all of your longings? I would love to tell you as your pastor, I think you expect me to say absolutely 24 hours a day, seven days a week, this is me. But I try not to lie to you while I'm in the pulpit. I struggle. I'm a brother in Christ before I'm your pastor. I struggle. There are times that I, I've put my hope and my affection in something else or I've, I've trusted in some system, even a good thing for peace and it always disappoints. Only God delivers this level of goodness. No good compares to the Lord. And here's how you know David's in the palm of God's hand. Watch this. In verse 3, he says he delights in being around the people of God. I mean, swallow that for a moment. I mean, David likes being around church folk. So do I, and so should we. Notice his language here about the people of God. He says they are his delight. He delights in being around God's people who have found their refuge in the Lord. Why? Because when they're together, they're encouraging one another in the Lord. In the New Testament, we see the language in the epistles written to the churches to build one another up in our most holy faith, to encourage one another, even as we see the day of the Lord approaching Man, if being around church folk and God's people is a drag on you, can I just lovingly and gently suggest to you that the problem is not the church people. It might be your relationship with the Father. Because when we're satisfied in Him, we can more easily see the good in others and in those around us. Man, what a powerful way. This is God's way. That the, the man of God, the woman of God would find refuge in him and would see their highest good in the Lord and, and would see that no good compares to God and that it, it's of joy to be around the people who love God. But there's another way mentioned here. Let's look at verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after another God, do you see it? It's a little g, not a big g, shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Now, for those of you who have an affinity for the gruesome in the room that think I'm going to bear down on the drink offering of blood, and that's the key part of this text, it is not. I will be moving on. What's he saying there? I'll get to that in a minute. I want you to notice the contrast he's painted. The main point of that verse is the contrast between his satisfaction, his refuge, his pleasure, the goodness that he's experiencing in God, and the multiplied pain and sorrow for those chasing after other gods. The Bible calls this idolatry. And we commit idolatry as human beings when we disobey the first commandment of the Ten Commandments. What is it? You shall have no other gods before me. And we say, hmm, that sounds interesting, God. If it's all right with you, I'm going to go my way. And I'm going to put everything else above you in my life. 
This is idolatry. The Bible calls this idolatry, young people. We don't see a lot of folks worshiping like a, a, a wooden carved image this day. I, I doubt very seriously that, that, that many of your friends, I don't know, all your friends, but many of them probably don't have uh, statues in their home that they worship and bow down to and pray to and treat like gods. That was kind of a normal thing in the Bible time. But, but here's the deal. Anything that we love more than God is an idol. Anything that we can't do without is an idol if it's not of the Lord. And so there are struggles for those of us in the family of God where we get to encourage one another and, and lovingly confront one another and help build one another up on our way. Be careful there, brother. It looks like you've got too much affection. Sister, be careful there. You want to make sure you keep Jesus first. That's good encouragement. David's not talking to those inside the family of God now. He's saying these folks run after these other gods. They are hoping to make their lives better, but they are heaping on condemnation for themselves. Do, do you understand that those that don't follow the God of this Bible, those that don't have a living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, do you understand that they are already condemned? You say, I don't care for that language, Pastor Chad. In fact, I heard a preacher on TV just the other day say, Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, Pastor. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. Well, I'm glad you brought that up. You didn't, I did, but hang with me. Let's look at that verse in context, shall we? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Here it is, ready? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And you go, see? And I go, but look. See what I did there? See, you know. Okay. Verse 18, whoever, Jesus is speaking, by the way. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Verse 19, and this is the judgment. Jesus is talking about condemnation and judgment. These are his words. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light because their works are evil. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light. Jesus has used condemn, judgment, and hate in one sentence because their works were evil. They hate the light. They don't come to the light lest their works should be exposed. What's the point here? David is drawing the contrast between the satisfaction and the way of God that has us running to a safe place and the way of man which takes us away from God toward multiplied pain, multiplied sorrow, and eternal condemnation. Well, God's way certainly sounds better. And if I were here today saying that there are two paths to choose, that would be something, wouldn't it? Well, who would ever choose to go that second way? What, are you crazy? Here's the problem. We all show up heading that other way. And Christ invites us to the path of life. So there's the path of peace we see clearly right here in these first four verses. The next thing I want you to see are the, or rather is the reality of peace. If you were reading the Psalms in order and you had just read Psalm 15 and come to me and said, hey, I've just read Psalm 15, that's kind of a doozy, 
it, it kind of is because there's a lot of sacrifice and surrender in Psalm 15. There's a pretty high mark set for the people of God that should be normative people worshiping God. And you might ask the question, who in the world would ever want to live for God if you got to do all that stuff? Why would anybody want to live for God? And David answers that with the reality of peace that comes in these passages. Look with me um, at verse 5. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. Now, David's been talking to others in the way that he's writing the song, and now he's talking to God. He does this a lot. He switches the audience quite often, and he's saying, Lord, you're my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. What's he saying? God, you are all I need. You're all I need. You, you hold me exactly where I need to be held. You embrace me where I need to be embraced. You, I've got a cup. If you think of my life as a cup, you have put into my cup everything that I need. All the love that I need, God has. All the joy that I need, God has. All the peace that I need, God has. All the hope that I need, God has. You see, hope and joy and peace and love have a name. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And David here in the Old Testament, Hebrew passage, Hebrew songs, before the incarnation, before the resurrection, is saying, God, you are enough. And he doesn't have the indwelling Holy Spirit like we do today. And he can sing about God being enough. Look at verse 6. He says, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Now you take a second and you're like, well, now, Chad, Pastor. Of course David would say that. He's writing this from the palace. <laughs> he has people attending to his every need. He's got a bell he rings and the servant comes up and washes his big toe if it stinketh. You know, I don't know what palace life is life. I'm imagining that was what it was. Is that what he's talking about? Is that the context that he's writing of? Is he writing from a place of prosperity because he's got a lot of stuff? No. He's writing it connected to the fact that God is all he needs. And because God is all he needs, and God has chosen to reveal himself to his servant, he's got a good life. Now, David had pain and sorrow and sin and murder and adultery and fornication and death. Those are a part of David's story. David, somebody said, was good at sinning, but he was better at repenting. David had a living relationship with God, and he knew where his satisfaction should come from. The lines had fallen to him in pleasant places. I want you to understand that's a verse you can quote any time, day or night. The lines have fallen to you in pleasant places. Why? Because you have the word of God in a language you can understand. God has not cut you out of his plan. He's invited you into a living relationship and he's done all the work so that all you have to do is come. And when you come, you'll repent of your sin. You'll forsake that life of selfish ambition and pursue selfless love for the Lord and others. What a God. The lines have fallen to us in pleasant places. He speaks, verse seven, he says, I'm gonna bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. Is David getting a, a special Rima revelation from God? Is God tapping David on the sh shoulder and waking up at night and saying, David, I've got a word for you. I don't think God speaks that voice. I didn't know why I went there. 
But uh, is he waking David up and saying that? No, I, I don't think so. That doesn't really jive with David's other writing. Think, think back to what the psalmists have written and, and the book that David would study, the, the, the first five books of the Bible, the scrolls that David would read. Think back on these moments and you'll find that David believed Old Testament Hebrew, pre-incarnation, pre-resurrection, David believed that God spoke through his word. So do I. So do I. David would get instruction from God as he was meditating on God's word day and night. You see, the Bible says, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, but walks in the counsel of God, meditating in the law of God day and night. Joshua 1, 8 and 9, the, the Bible says that we meditate in God's word so that we can observe to do according to all that's written in it, and then we'll make our way prosperous and have good success. That's not earthly prosperity that's heavenly prosperity as we walk with the Lord David knew that he wanted to bless God because God was a speaking God and he still is and he speaks peace through his word to those who find favor with him verse 8 David says I have set the Lord always before me he is at my right hand I shall not be shaken He's saying, God, you're my priority. I'm okay. Things may rattle around me, but I'm, I'm not shaken to my core. God is my defender. And because God is my defender, verse 9, my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, and my flesh dwells secure. What's David saying in Hebrew in the Old Testament? You ready for my translation? I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Where? Where? I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Where? To stay. And I'm so happy. No, I'll stop there. He's got a joy that, that it can almost ignore what's going on around him because he is in God's arms. A living relationship with God. The presence of God is reward all by itself. To walk with God, to know God, to experience the Lord's promises makes a heart glad and brings great joy, even in dire circumstances. Grab yourself a copy of Fox's Book of Martyrs. Grab yourself a copy of any book or subscribe to the persecuted church and read of the great joy that comes in dire situations not because there's hope it's going to change but because they bless the Lord because he's worthy well the only way we can walk on the path of peace and experience the reality of peace is if we have a relationship with here's your third point the prince that gives peace and David speaks of his actions even in this Old Testament Hebrew song before the incarnation and before the resurrection. He says, somebody tapped their neighbor and says, he said that like 10 times. There must be something to that. Hold on, I'll get there. The prince that gives peace. Listen to the actions that David describes of our Lord in verses, uh, the last few verses here, verses 10 and 11. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that the God of the Bible, 
The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God that promised David and had a covenant with David, God is with him. And because God is with him, there's no battle that shakes him. God is with him, and he'll never leave him, never forsake him. And God, if you look at the second part of that, says you won't let your Holy One see corruption, will not lead his servants down a path of corruption. Now remember, some of you are looking at that with your New Testament goggles on, and that's good. It's good to look at that that way. But David is not really speaking of the resurrection here. There's no resurrection theology in the Old Testament yet. Got it? Now the Holy Spirit's using this in a wonderful way, and I'll come to that in a minute too. It's quoted in the New Testament. But when David is writing this, he has probably, most likely, if you look at how he's writing, on his mind, on his heart, the fact that God leads us toward life and not corruption. Where do you get that from, preacher? Well, let's look at the text together. Look at the very next verse. Context is a beautiful thing. You make known to me the path of, what does it say? Life. God will not lead us down the path of corruption. I don't want to spend too much time there, but let me just say this. You may say, I have a strong sense in my spirit that I need to dot, dot, dot. Or I feel led that God is leading me to dot, dot, dot. Or I just have a, the Holy Spirit told me dot, dot, dot. First of all, red flag, red flag, red flag. We can talk later. But secondly, if you're being led down a path that leads you to corruption, I can pretty well tell you, God ain't in it. He's not leading you down a path that makes you look and act and behave and speak more like the world that's multiplying sorrows and pain and condemnation for themselves than he's leading you down a path to be a holy people set apart for his glory and honor. That's old school holiness preaching. I'm okay with it. God gave these laws to the Jewish people back in the Old Testament. And the context is he was giving them laws about fabrics and about the way they moved and planted gardens. And you're thinking, what in the world? What's, when you're in your hear journals, some of you in our discipleship groups doing your hear journals, the application part's pretty thin there, right? When we're writing about, you don't sow this crop with that crop, you're going, um, uh, I'll eat my corn and green beans separately. I don't think that's what we're talking about. What was the purpose of all of these laws that God gave Israel that context hasn't borne out they kept even in, under the new covenant? What was it? God was setting them apart in every way to be a distinct people for his glory. The nations could look at the nation of Israel and say, they're not like us. Well, there's no nation today like that, but there's a people. There's a remnant. There's the people of God. There's you and I under this new covenant of grace that God has given us, invited into the family of God, and the world and the nations are looking. And God is not leading us in this day and age, in 2022, to look and act and smell and talk and think like the rest of the nations. That's a path of corruption. In his way, there's life. In his presence, there's joy. He satisfies us forevermore, and he always has, and he always will. Now, I keep mentioning the Hebrews didn't have this theology of resurrection there, but it's so powerful how the Holy Spirit and God is the author of all Scripture, and it's all profitable because this passage shows up in Acts 11 as Peter quotes from here and uses it, applies it to the resurrection of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. 
God's word is absolutely complete and accurate. My point in saying to you that this is before the incarnation and this is before the resurrection. What's my point in telling you that? Here's my point. The Hebrews had a song of peace. Before the incarnation, before the resurrection, they were tapped in to a source that gave them an inner peace as they focused on the Lord. What about our song of peace on this side of the incarnation and the resurrection? When Jesus hung, bled, and died on the cross, bearing our sin and our shame on the cross, paying the full debt that we owed to God so that we might stand right before God and give Him the glory that He deserves. What song could we sing? If you've got your Bibles, it was in your reading this week in our reading plan that our church is doing in Philippians chapter 4. Flip over there real fast. Philippians chapter 4. I'm going to show you the song that Paul thought was appropriate for us to sing. Actually, he thought it was quite reasonable for us to sing this song. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Here it is, verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Congregation, would you with me, let's read that verse out loud together. There's something about hearing yourself saying the word of God out loud. Read it together with me, please. It's on the screen. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Wow. Do you need the peace of God? Do you need that inner turmoil and conflict settled? You know what else you need? If you would describe yourself as outside the family of God, outside of a covenant relationship with God, the peace that you need is not just peace from God, you need peace with God. Because Jesus said, if you're not following him, you already stand condemned. And the folks that are condemned, the Bible describes as headed for, watch this, the un bridled wrath of God poured out on sinners that would stomp underfoot the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we are apart from Christ, we're headed for judgment. It's appointed unto man once to die and after this to judgment. And that ought to rob you of inner peace if that's your situation. I'm not here promising peace to folks who try to do better and turn over a new leaf and come to church and memorize a few scriptures and sing a few songs and show up on a Sunday and give a little money to some good causes. There's no promise for peace in the Bible for that. The peace that comes from God flows out of a relationship with God and that comes through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You come to God and you say, God, I'm a sinner. I deserve your wrath. Lord, I deserve punishment and separation. I need a savior. Lord, I want to follow you. You not only made me, you made me for your glory and your honor, and I want to live with you. You know what? You won't pray a prayer like that. You won't say words like that unless the Holy Spirit is dealing with you. 
That's just how this all works. It kind of happens. There's a behind-the-scenes happening and an on-the-scene, front-of-stage thing happening at the same time. What's our Christmas connection this morning? Well, they opened with promising Isaiah saying, one day there's coming a prince of peace. Later on in Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3, he would write this phrase that we know, and I think Paul had this on his mind when he was talking about this peace in Philippians 4. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. In the Hebrew there, there's no word for perfect peace. That's not the words that are there. The words that are there is natsare shalom shalom. That's that existing that first word, and then shalom, shalom, you heard it twice. When shalom is mentioned twice together, it's a picture of perfection. And, and what Isaiah is promising is he, here is shalom, shalom, perfect peace when our minds are stayed on the Lord. One morning in 1875, Canaan Gibbon of Harrogate preached from that text, and he preached God giving peace, peace. Bishop Bickersteth was in the audience that morning, left, went back to his room, and wrote the hymn, Peace, Perfect Peace. He wrote it where line one is a question and line two is an answer. I'm going to close with this as we transition to prayer and reflection. Peace, perfect peace in this dark world of sin. The blood of Jesus whispers peace within Peace, perfect peace with sorrows surging round on Jesus' bosom, naught but peace is found. Peace, perfect peace mid suffering's sharpest throes, the sympathy of Jesus breathes repose. Peace, perfect peace with loved ones far away, in Jesus' keeping we are safe, and so are they. Last stanza. Peace, Perfect peace, our future all unknown. Jesus we know, and he is on the throne. Let's pray this morning. Lord, I wonder for those here this morning who are in a constant state of inner turmoil and inner conflict. Father, my prayer and hope is that they would cast themselves on the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that it's the truth that you will not abandon us. You will not lead us toward corruption. You will make known to us the path of life. Father, we celebrate you this morning because there is fullness of joy in your presence and there are pleasures forevermore for those who abide with you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I pray that each and every one of us today, for the saint that we would receive and enjoy that peace when the world tries to drown it out, 
I pray for those who don't yet know you this morning as Lord and Savior. God, that they would receive the peace that only comes as they put their faith and trust in you. We love you. We bless you. And now as we transition, Lord, to celebrate your table, your elements of worship this morning, we do so with a heart of gratitude and thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, let the church say amen.